somebody gave, gave me a present, and I love presents. Uh, somebody gave me this on the way in. I saw it yesterday. For those who have been following this Rhythm and Rules series, uh, you will know what this is. Well, I know everybody knows what this is, but, but you'll know why I'm particularly delighted to have got one of these. So we're going to put it up somewhere in, in the church. But this, this is the penultimate one in this series. Trevor's going to finish the series next week, where we've been thinking about what it means to have and to write a personal rule of life. And all along what we've been saying is that a rule of life is simply a trellis-like structure that supports and encourages upward growth and increasing fruitfulness. It's about being intentional and putting practices or disciplines or holy habits such as prayer and Sabbath and Bible reading and time with family and friends and play, all of those things. It's about putting, intentionally putting those in place in our lives in order to facilitate and enable development as Christians. And two weeks ago, we thought about money, recognizing that our attitude towards it and how we handle it and how we handle our finances is an important spiritual growth, maturity, and discipleship issue. It really is. Money, as Jesus made clear, and we, we looked at this, money is and can be a rival God. And if we're not careful, it will solicit our affection, our worship, our hearts. And money has the potential to, to kind of stunt and wreck our growth as Christians. And therefore, writing certain practices into a rule of life regarding our use of money is probably or actually definitely a really good idea. This evening, I want us to uh, turn to the whole area of work, which is clearly connected to money, or at least earning it. But before we, we dive into this issue, I realize that, that in a congregation like this, everybody's circumstances are varied and different. Some here are working. Some aren't. Some are working, but they're not getting paid for it. E.g., maybe stay-at-home mums or dads, or people who volunteer in some capacity. Some are here in your in-between jobs. Some are out of work and have been for a long time. Some are at school or at college or at uni. Some would love to work but are unable to work because of health reasons. Some are retired. Now, obviously, I can't speak into and address all of those situations and think, but what I wanted to do was even read it, just simply acknowledge the variety of situations that people find themselves in, but then to take a step back and zoom out, so to speak, and think about the big picture. Think about work in general, which means I realize that what each of us is going to have to do is take what I share and then apply it to our personal current circumstances or understanding of this critical issue. So you're going to need to filter, if you like, what I'm about to share and apply it to where you're at. Now work, or the jobs that we do, 
is where most of us spend the majority of our waking hours. Apparently, the average person, you may have heard this before, spends something like 99,117 hours off their lives at work. Now, don't, don't try work that out, okay? Uh, don't try to check it out or break it down. The point is this. We spend a lot of time there doing this. And therefore, having a right view of work, a biblical view, a biblical perspective and understanding is vital because if we have a wrong view of work or a slightly skewed view of our jobs, then we'll probably end up misunderstanding work or resenting the work that we do. I wonder if this quote resonates. Must our work be seen as a prison sentence? A result of the curse, something where we do our time and from which we seek an early escape. In certain spheres of industry and business, you hear people talk about freedom 45 or 55. Can anybody tell me, just get a bit of interaction going, can anybody tell me what freedom 45 or 55 might mean in certain kind of sectors of work? What does it mean? Pardon? No, not lunch break. <laughs> like that. People want 45, 55 minutes. No? Free, freedom 45, 55? Yeah. They hope to be able to retire at 45 or 55 and then be free. Freedom for, free from their job. Free from work. So the question I want to ask you this evening is, and as I say, filter this, process this. How do you feel about your work? I want you to turn, no, I don't want you to turn to the person beside you. How, how do you feel about your job? Do you, to quote the title of one book about the subject from a Christian perspective, do you thank God it's Monday? Or rather, do you thank God tomorrow is Monday? <laughs> a recent discover, or study discovered that most people live between a grudging acceptance of their job and an active dislike of it. So where do you sit? The same study also discovered that most people are obsessed with their jobs and acknowledge that work consumes them. So for many people, there's a real tension here. But let's be honest, because there are some days when you love your job, aren't there? Please nod at me and tell me there are some days. There are some days you love doing what you do. There are other days you don't. Some of you might remember this quote from Mark Buchanan in, in his brilliant book, The Rest of God. There are days you stretch out into your job like a wild horse, loosed after a tethering, thundering across open plains, gaining fresh strength with each stride. Other days it's like dressing in wet denim or like having a root canal without anesthetic. <laughs> And the thing is, there, there are probably more of the latter days, aren't there, than we care to admit. But what I want to do is go back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, to discover what is a biblical basis regarding the origin of work. But before we do that, let me, let me mention an alternative creation narrative or perspective. As most of you know, there are different ancient Near Eastern creation stories of how the world came into existence 
And in a number of those, and this is the point I'm just making, don't, don't read too much on this, but in, at the point of, or in a number of those, work is seen very negatively. So, for example, in, in one of the most popular ancient Near Eastern creation stories, a Babylonian creation myth, the Unuma Elish, it talks about a battle that breaks out among the gods. And Marduk emerges as victor, and he creates a world from the body of his arch enemy, Tamat. And the other gods say to him, well, now that you have created the earth, you've got to work to keep it up, to keep it going, to sustain it. To which, in this myth, Marduk replies, I will create a lowly creature called man to take care of it. And so in this account of our origins, the gods scorn work and therefore create human beings to do the work that they do want to be involved in at any level. And we also find this kind of negative attitude towards work prevalent in the writings and thinking of key Greek philosophers even, such as Plato and Aristotle, who both, as I understand it, viewed work, especially physical work, as debased. Something which degrades human minds and bodies. Very negative view of work. But Scripture, God's Word, the Bible, the story of our origins, looks at and sees work entirely differently. Let me read a selection of verses from Genesis 1 and 2. Just, just listen as I read through these. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So God created human beings in his own image. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. On the seventh day, God finished his work of creation. And so he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, declared it holy, because it was the day when he rested from all his work of creation. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground. Then the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the first point that we can take from these early chapters in Genesis is that God works. And in the very first pages of the book of beginnings, according to one writer I was reading this week, we see God working in ways we might characterize as both blue and white collar. And so at one level, God gets his hands dirty as he forms humans from the earth. But then he's employed as a kind of architect, imagining, designing a universe. So slight aside, if you jump forward to, to Jesus, we may not know about much of his life between the ages of 12 and 30, but it's most likely that he spent his time, a lot of his time, working. According to Luke, we know Jesus followed his foster father into the carpentry trade. And then at age 30, he kind of, his work shifted to teaching and mentoring. And so God worked. It says in those creation that he took a rest from the work of his. God worked. Jesus worked. And that tells us something in itself. But back to Genesis 1. 
Because according to the text, we, the created, have been fashioned and made in the image of the creator. And so we encounter a God at work who creates people to work. And so the second point is that that we were created to work and that when we do work, we co-create with God. Let me repeat Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. So, pre-fall, before it all went horribly wrong and sin entered paradise, man worked. Work was part of God's original plan for human beings. So any notion that work was or is a result of the fall needs to be deleted and erased from our minds and our thinking. Work is not a curse. In fact, as someone has said, the idea that work itself is a curse may be one of the most stubborn myths of Western culture. Work is not a curse. Work is intrinsically good. God worked. Jesus worked. God created man to work. But as the creation story continues, we we discover how things did go badly wrong in the garden. There's a serpent. There's a deception. There's a compromise. There's a hiding. There's a blaming. And the party's over. Sin infects Eden and God reacts. If you go down to Genesis 3, 17 to 19, you read these words. Cursed is the ground because of you, says God. Painful toil you will eat. Through painful toil, work, you will eat of it all the days of your life. The earth will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so work, just like everything else in God's perfect creation, was affected, was impacted, and suffered. And therefore, it's no wonder you don't like your job some days. It's no wonder there are days when it feels like a burden and you could see it far enough. Sin has done to work what sin has done to so many aspects of life. But that doesn't mean, or it shouldn't mean we resign ourselves or buy into this negative view of work. This understanding and recognition that we've been looking at isn't meant to provide us with a license to adopt, as many do, a careless attitude to work. As Bible-believing people, we embrace a gospel of change, the good news of transformation, of realignment, and the challenge we face is to have and to grab hold of a renewed and a renewing view of work despite of or in light of our struggles and the pressures and the demands and the difficulties that many of us do encounter in that context. But the challenge we face is to think differently about work because we are transformed by the renewal of our thinking. And so we need to see work from God's perspective, from a biblical perspective, not to buy into the culture's view of it. We were created to work. And although it doesn't always bring the joy, the satisfaction, the meaning, and the spark that it was originally intended to bring, 
Because when God created man and put him to work, God stepped back and saw that all was good. It was enjoyable. But even though it doesn't always bring us the joy and satisfaction and meaning and spark, we still need to see it as a gift and as something we should do wholeheartedly for God because work is worship. Here's an amazing and well-known slice of biblical advice on how we should approach work. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Here's the bit. As working for the Lord, not for human masters. And so whatever you find yourself doing this week, painting a ceiling, preparing a spreadsheet, listening to a lecture, delivering a lecture, looking after kids, writing an article, caring for the sick. You are, as a child of God and as a Christian, you're urged to do it for him as an act of worship and service. The late Dallas Willard develops this a little further. He describes work, and I love this. You hear what he says? He describes work as a spiritual transformation training center. Is that how you see your work? In his classic, The Divine Conspiracy, I don't know many, how many people have, have managed to work their way through that, that book. It's, it's an amazing book, but it's heavy going. But The Divine Conspiracy, in that book, Willard contends that the primary place of our spiritual formation, you may want to pick up on this, you may want to argue with this, but this primary place of our spiritual formation is not church or small groups or 15 minutes of Bible reading or praying, but it is our workplace our school, or our homes as we change light bulbs and as we change nappies. To quote Willard, to not find your job to be the primary place of discipleship is to automatically exclude a major part, if not most, of your waking hours from life with him. The gospel turns your work into a spiritual formation training center. Uh, is that how you see your workplace? Mark Green from the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity, who is the guy who wrote, thank God it's Monday, and has written a lot on, on this issue, he, he provocatively suggests that many of us are like atheists when it comes to our work. In other words, he says, we sometimes talk of work as if we don't believe God exists in that sphere of our lives. Work needs to be seen as a core central act of worship. It's far, far more than simply or just a job. So what we do during those 48, 40 plus hours this week is not just for the NHS or for that company or for those clients or for those kids. What we do this week is for Almighty God. It is the Lord's work. That's one of those deeply misunderstood and misused phrases and cliches in church world. Because for many people, whenever they hear that someone is involved in the Lord's work, they immediately assume that that must mean a church minister or someone who's serving with a mission organization or agency. It's a bit like the term full-time Christian work. 
Again, the perception is that that is somehow something that I do, that I'm involved in in full-time Christian work, whereas you're not. (laughs) And what we've got to adopt and maintain and guard is a deeper, richer, more biblical understanding of those phrases. We've got to accept and recognize that that what all of us do this week as followers of Jesus Christ in that office, in that surgery, in that classroom, in that factory, in that house, all of that is the Lord's work. It's full time. You are involved in full-time Christian work. Martin Luther put it brilliantly. The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. (laughs) The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes. Because God is interested in good craftsmanship. I I don't for one moment believe that God values some types of work above others. The issue is, what has God called you to do? That, that's, that's the question. What has God called you to do? To serve him in full-time Christian ministry. That may be to lead a church. That may be to preach or serve with SIM or OMF or Baptist missions. But equally, God may have called you to design buildings, teach kids, balance books, make meals. God may call you into a different job, lead you in an alternative direction. How God does that is probably the subject of a whole other sermon. But until God does call you into another job, role, area of work, do what you're currently doing and do it well. Do it for the Lord, not for human masters. Do it unto God. Take the work of your hands and your heads and allow it to become the worship of your hearts, a holy offering to God. Listen to Paul's advice to Christian slaves who who probably thought that now they were Christians, God would call them to something different, something more important. And this is what Paul said to them. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men. So work itself is an offering to God. It can be an act of of worship, St. Benedict, and I know we've, we've kind of referred to his rule of life quite often during this series, but he strongly affirmed this and he emphasized that work in itself has value as, an, as a devotional act toward God. And his, his famous kind of dictum or command or instruction was pray and work. And he said this to remind those who might or would embrace his rule of life that work done prayerfully Done with the right attitude. Work glorifies God. We can 
glorify God through our work. This is one of the reasons why he introduced a rhythm to each day which interspersed work with pauses so that people could just stop and briefly pray for a moment or two. They kind of developed into what we know maybe as the daily offices. And the reason he introduced that rhythm into the day was so that all of life, including work, would be continually devoted to God. And that partly came out of of his reading of the Apostle Paul's admonition that believers should pray without ceasing. How do we do that? How do we pray without ceasing? Well, for St. Benedict, pray and work. That as we work, that we do it prayerfully in such a way that it glorifies God. And so... What I want to do then, just to kind of bring a lot of these thoughts together, is show you a painting. It's a painting called The Angelus by Jean-Francois Millet. It was completed in 1859, and as I understand it, it, it's still hanging in a gallery in Paris. And it's a beautiful reminder that all our work is done in God's presence. And it can be done for God's glory. And that all our work can be done as an act of worship. And the painting depicts two peasants taking a moment during their work in the fields to bow their heads and pray as the setting sun gently bathes the land. And on the horizon behind them is a church steeple whose angelus bell hence the title of the painting, is calling people to pray. Yet if you look carefully at the sun's rays, and unfortunately, whenever you project these images up onto to this screen, you, you miss this bit, but you've got to believe me on this one. But if you look carefully at the original painting, at the sun's rays, you will notice that they, they don't fall on the steeple of the church, nor even primarily on the couple as they stand praying. But the sun's rays are depicted as falling on the wheelbarrow and the pitchfork and on the crop in which the crops, in the basket in which the crops have gathered at the couple's feet. And apparently by casting the sun's rays and the light on these objects, Millet was intimating that God is present not only in our church life and in our formal praise, but in our everyday working life as well. And whether we work with our hands or our head, whether we're paid or we're volunteers, our work is done before the face of God. Prayer and work. And maybe that simple discipline of just pausing during your day's work, of just committing our work to God, I don't know how many of you do this. I was reading how, for some people, we, we, we do pause just before we eat a meal so we say grace. What about just the simple discipline of pausing when you get to your desk each morning, when you get to your classroom, just before you write that report? What about just pausing and committing what you're about to do to God that may encourage us to become even more <laughs> conscious that our work is an offering of worship to God, 
that our places of work are and can be spiritual formation training centers. So how we perceive work and what we think of what we do, most of our, our awake time really matters. And so for me, a biblical perspective means seeing work as these five things. A gift, something God always intended for us, a reflection of his image, an act of worship, and as a means of bringing glory to God. And that outlook, that view just might, just might alter your attitude to this week. But remember, in order to live differently, you've got to begin to think differently. Any change, any deep change in how we live begins with a deep change in how we think because we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as we think about writing a personal rule of life, let me encourage you when it comes to what you're going to write, and write throughout the series, what we've, I've been trying to encourage you to do is take each of the things that we've been thinking about, prayer, scripture reading, Sabbath, family, friends, play, money, work, take each of those and think about writing something intentional that encourages you in your growth and development as a Christian. So what will you write into your rule of life regarding work? And maybe it is just that simple little line that says, I'm gonna bow my head at the start of each day of work. I'm gonna pause at a certain time each day at work. At my bench, my sink, my laptop. And I'm going to commit the work of my hands and the work of my head to God in prayer. Let me finish with a thought from Brother Lawrence who talked about practicing the presence of God in whatever we did. The more conscious we become of being with God in our work, the better we are able to prayerfully improve the quality of the work we do. The more conscious we become of being with God in our work, the better we are able to prayerfully improve the quality of the work we do. Just in the quietness, I'd love to just read a couple of prayers about work, taken from this little book, Power Lines, and then another prayer from a little book called Pocket Prayers for Work uh, that you can get on Kindle if you're interested. But let me just read some of these prayers. Let me invite you to pray them with me as you think about your work, what God has called you to do as you serve him in full-time Christian ministry, as you're involved in the Lord's work. Here's a morning dedication. In all I do this day, in all I think or say, Father, be with me all the way. In all my work and all my deeds, in all I learn, in all my needs, Christ, go before me, the one who leads. In my work, as I do my best, 
in all that puts me to the test. Spirit, help and grant me rest. Mighty God, holy and strong one, give us strength to do what you would have us do. Deliver us from lack of purpose. Free us from confusion of mind. Save us from loss of integrity. Maintain in us vision and ideals. Sustain our openness and generosity. Help us to continue to work for you that we may serve you all our days, mighty God, holy and strong one. And finally, we commit our work to you, O God. Make us instruments of your grace, ministers in your service and creators in your kingdom. Help us serve the needs of others to preserve in truth, truth to persist in prayer, and at all times to seek your will, so that in all our daily work, begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name. And we make this prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.